0: Welcome to the Change Chats, inspiring talks from people creating change to inspire people to create change. The Chats are recorded in front of a live audience in Vancouver, Canada. prevention policy uh, to growing food on school grounds and kind of like what what we're up to. Awesome. So Fresh Roots, we grow good food for all. We believe that everyone should have access to healthy land, food, and community. And the way that we do that is by cultivating, engaging gardens and programs that catalyze healthy eating, ecological stewardship, and community celebration, which is like a lot of words for saying that we grow educational farms on school grounds. And uh, I got into this uh, because I, I have a background in genocide prevention policy, and I was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I learned that our university had investments in, Sudanese, in companies that were doing uh, business in Sudan during the Sudanese genocide, which there's still a tremendous amount of violence that's happening there currently. And uh, I realized that this was happening. I went to the university and I said, "Hey." I don't think that our tuition dollars or any of the investments should be supporting this working world like why are we doing this. And they said, oh, that's, that's a great idea. Let's let's have some meetings. We'll have a lot of meetings about this. And then uh, we'll make a decision. So uh, it took about a year and a half, and finally we got like all the people who had you know, power and decision-making power uh, to get together. And we all sat down at this really big board table uh, where they placed us in awkward positions to show us how little power we had. They said, uh, we're really sorry, we don't make investment decisions based on social goals. And from that, that day, what I learned is when uh, social goals are on the other side of financial goals, financial goals uh, win. And So um, I kind of came out of that process pretty jaded, to be really honest with you. Um, and I started to think about what I could do. And it turns out that uh, a 20 year old boy slash still 30 year old boy eats uh, a lot of food, uh, often four to eight times a day. And so I started to think about what is the impact that that's happening, that that's happening on my planet. What's, what impact is that having on the people that are picking that food? Who are those people? What is the impact that my food choices have? Just as what impact is the choice of my university? have on on the community and the world. And so um, as I started to explore food, um, I uh, I was working on my, my, I was like, I don't know what to do in the world. I will just go to law school. That's what what I should do. I will help people there. And I uh, was uh, having a hard time with my logic. Uh, I came to do these logic puzzles. And I was like, I'll just take a break and I will read this National Geographic article, uh, which was, uh, this actually National Geographic article, which was, I guess, 2010 circa, and uh, the whole issue was on green roofs. And so, I was looking at at green roofs, and one of them, just one out of all of the National Geographic green roofs in the world, uh, was actually growing food on the roof, and so the, Really Brilliant idea that it had was instead of just having so green roofs are really cool for lots of reasons. The first of is that they save you a ton of money because you reduce the amount of uh, electricity you need, all the utilities in the building. You create a microclimate with shades, uh, the whole area actually. It reduces stormwater runoff, all these very sexy things for planners. But the business people, the people that invest in green roofs, are kind of like, oh yes, that's that's nice, but. A green roof that grows food on the top makes revenue by selling that food back into the restaurant downtown, which is exactly what this was happening over at the Fairmont downtown. You can actually still go there. The head housekeeper—just uh, imagine a like very solid British fellow uh, who is in his tuxedo with full beekeeping gear—and uh, you can check that out at the Fairmont uh, downtown. Really great guy, and. Um, But anyways, this kind of like sexy idea of being able to grow food on on the roof and then sell that back in. I was like, that's brilliant, screw this LSAT stuff, I'm gonna go study that in Vancouver. So I came to Vancouver to study this green roof urban agriculture, uh, only to learn that there's really only one green roof farm, and that's this one, there were no others. I was like, Uh, what am I gonna do now? Um, But it turns out that there's actually uh, a lot of urban farms out here. And I just love poetry, so I'm just going to read this one. Just how we do, we sat and stewed, waiting to make the count, to share how much we grow for lunch to take stock of the amount. That urban farms have grown these years, tilling in the soil, and celebrating all our work, our sweat, and our toil. And so we do, with a great debut, open this year's census, to tell the story of our fr- farms, our broccoli, and our lettuce. And so I I worked uh, for the U.S. Census. Best job I've ever had in my life is start paying you when you walk out your door to begin. was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I did a deal with them. Instead of uh, getting paid for my uh, driving miles, I said, like, hey, I have to buy extra burritos for my biking. And so, uh, anyways, that's a great story for another time. Uh, but, but the point of this is that I was pretty good at counting. Uh, I have actually, a, from, the, from my university, I have a finance degree and a political science degree. And so, instead of there being farms on, on top of buildings, what there were were, there, were farms on the ground. They're in people's backyards. If you go anywhere in Vancouver and you look in people's backyards, you're like, oh my god, this trellis is amazing these beans, people that, that have been bringing their ancestral knowledge of food growing are all around this community. And so I started to set out to understand, and that urban farmers themselves are trying to understand, well, how many of us are there? How much food do we grow? What does that look like? And so it was in that time that I actually met uh, this woman that's sitting uh, in the front row over here, uh, Ilana, and uh, and, uh, and I'll share that story in bit, but as I was doing, as I was beginning to learn about what was happening in urban farms, I also got to know a little bit more of what's happening in our communities. And uh, you know, people talk about this, oh, there's this food disconnect. Well, what exactly does that mean? It means that in schools in Vancouver, 48% of females, uh, are are healthy weight females are trying to lose weight. They don't, there is this misunderstanding of what we should look like who we should be, all related to our food. It means that we're not eating the right amounts of fruits and vegetables. It means that we have a third of our population that's overweight or obese. At the same time, at the school that we have one of our farms at, a fourth of the students have been food insecure in the past month. That means they don't know where their next meal is coming from. There are 2,000 students across Vancouver that go hungry every day. So we have a system that's really not feeding us, like literally not feeding us. And this is ju- not just here in Vancouver, this is all across North America, this is across the world, right? We have a, roughly a billion people that are overfed and a billion people that are underfed. And like that's not the sort of place I want to live. And, and at the same time, at the same time that we need to figure out where is our, what is our food system, what is it gonna be? Turns out that the people that are helping figure that out are really old. The average age of farmers in BC. the new census of agriculture is coming out. It's going to say that it's 56. Hell, I'm 30, and I'm like, oh my back. Christine is our farmer here. She, we were just complaining about our backs earlier today because it's damn hard to farm. It's really hard. And I sure as hell do not want to be 56 and farming. It's really challenging. For every farmer that's under 35, there are Six over sixty-five. And if you think about it, right? Concert pianist. I heard this somewhere, this is not mine. A concert pianist will play a piece a million times. Again, again, again. A farmer? Sixty times. Maybe. Sixty to get it right. So what happens if that link in the chain dies? Where does that knowledge go? How do we learn those systems? You can learn it from above for sure, but it's a lot more helpful to have somebody help show you the rules. So start to learn about that. At the same time, here in Vancouver, we are lonelier than we want to be. We don't know our neighbors. This is like an amazing connection of people that are gonna talk to each other after this event, but think of the last restaurant where you went to and how many times you talked to the people that were sitting just at the table next door. And so friends, so fun, we have a tag team going on. Anyways, uh, we have friends, uh, Ilana and a friend of ours, Gray, were curious about how much food could we grow in backyards? How much could we share with the community? And what started in one backyard, feeding three families, grew into eight backyards, feeding 35 families. And one of those farms was adjacent to an elementary school. And the story of school gardens is a keen teacher, a parent, they get engaged, In urban agriculture, they're like, "Let's have a garden. This will be great." And for the first two years, it goes swimmingly. The teachers are engaged. They're keen. The parents—they're so into it. But then those kids graduate, and then the teacher gets asked to do like thirty thousand other things from their principal and the school district. And so that farm, that garden, fell into disarray. And so the principal said, "Hey, you guys are growing a garden next door." Why don't you guys just come in here? So we're like, we don't have any money, we don't have, we're not an organization, but yeah, sure, yeah, we'll do that. And in exchange, we'll work with your teachers to help them learn how to use the garden as an outdoor classroom, and we'll work with your students. And we're like, okay, well, and with the food that we grow, we'll be able to pay our way. We never made any money, really no money at all, but what we did start to realize is that students were fighting over broccoli, which indicated to our minds that something cool was happening here. And so principals and teachers were like, oh, this is a great idea. And they saw their own gardens growing fallow. Like, what could they do? And so they said, you know what? I think we guys should take land that looks like this and on our, on our high schools. And with a lot of help along the way, uh, like 200 people over the course of five days, with all the tools that you need from the city and from the surrounding community and from incredible donations of shovels. Like, you would not believe how many shovels you can get when you ask people for it. And we like to celebrate every, every step of the way. We're like a big, cheerleading, happy family of people. And uh, we built this half-acre farm at David Thompson Secondary and, and another one at Bantech Secondary in 2013, uh, which looks like like this. And on these, on these spaces, we grow about $40,000 worth of produce. And so we grow good food. The whole idea is to bring that food into the school cafeterias, the surrounding community, food security organizations, restaurants, neighbors. We're at Trout Lake today, somebody was saying that they saw us at, at the market, which is pretty cool. And on those spaces, we work with teachers to host experiential learning opportunities. Not secret, not all students learn best by sitting in straight rows. Not all teachers want to teach like that. And so how do we help teachers be able to use their creativity outside the classroom, using the garden as a place for that. So whether it's physics, using our irrigation system, social studies, whether that's science, whatever it might be, we work with those teachers to have class on And we, empower, we, work, we have a youth empowerment program. So during the summer, Youth that are interested, that are referred by their counselors or social service providers or friends, get to work with fresh And on that time, they learn how to grow, they cook food with local chefs, they make that available for themselves and anybody in the community that's in need, called Community Eats. And they actually sell it at the market. So they build financial literacy. Last week, we did a whole pricing workshop on blueberries and blueberry jam because they're making 324 jars of blueberry jam that they set the prices for that they determine the marketing program that they go to sell So that it's theirs and they decide where that profit goes, which goes Whichever they vote right now It seems that it's either to hire more students for next year or to make donations to the food bank and the point of this is is that what we've seen here in Vancouver, so we started these on, on two farms here in, in Vancouver, right? Van Tech and David Thompson Secondary for the like 1% of people that uh, went to high school here in Vancouver. And, and we actually partnered with Delta this, this past year. So the Delta School District has a new mini school program. So one, uh, every other day, students go to the farm to use that as their classroom. And uh, with Delta, we actually built a brand new three acre farm um, and all that food is getting connected back into the school program, to so the surrounding community, just as like it's doing here. And we have a really cool pro- project uh, that we're working with the Suwalk uh, Aboriginal School in Coquitlam on. And I think you know one of the things that though, is really important to acknowledge and to recognize that we are on unceded Coast Salish territory, right? Here we sit on the Musqueam's Willitude and Squamish Nation territory. And particularly when we think about agriculture, as a white man that's getting up here and talking about this, to recognize that agriculture is is the way of colonization. Right? When we talk about agriculture, what is useful land been deemed? A lot of that has been around agriculture. And so a question about like what is a food land or what is a food system gets often at the heart of this intersectionality between colonialism and Aboriginal rights. So very interesting and can be conflicted topic. And at this school, there's a seven-acre forest with an old stream that had been uh, running through it. And at the school, the students and the teachers are working to daylight that stream to pull out the invasive species of that forest to re-indigenize their food system and make claim to it. To have that be their space that they use to gather, to hunt salmon. We're going to work with the DFO to be able to grow fry in the classroom, salmon fry in the classroom. Uh, amazing program that's there. And release that back into the stream that's right next to their, their school. And so when we think about like what is our food system and what could that look like, to get people engaged that they are able to connect and be able to be a part of it. And so that's what's happening at SUA. And, and so these are just kind of some of the pieces that we that we work with. And, and it's a cool way to be able to think about what in my dream land, what it looks like is that at every school in Vancouver, there's a class that is there to grow food, to learn how to do it. Not This isn't for everybody, it doesn't have to be everybody, but what you learn from getting your body outside, and I'm sure we're gonna hear a lot more about body movement later, is that, is that when we move our bodies, there's such a connection that happens with our souls, with each other, it's a way of building communities, and that's the same thing with growing food. We, doesn't matter where you're from, everybody eats. And everybody has a relationship with food. And it may not be possible, but everybody has a relation to, to it. So how do we use that as a way that we can connect to one another? And so um, one of the things is, like, what are the things, things that we can do? It, it doesn't matter if you, know, you use your lunch money for uh, school supplies instead of lunch that day, or whether you get in a fight with mom and leave your lunch at home or you choose pop and chips, all those students are hungry. And the biggest way, the easiest way to reduce hunger in schools is to reduce poverty. And So that, you know, it's like we're growing food and that's wonderful and that's an important part of the process to draw attention to it. But the number one thing that we can do is to advocate for poverty reduction programs. And often that means raising the rates. And, or advocating for a guaranteed minimum income. So I'm just gonna like, put that out there for everybody because like that's the system change that needs to happen. And the second thing that we can do is we can support local farms. If we want to have farmland into the future, there's an amazing article right now in the New York Times about climate change and soil degradation, and I encourage you to read that. But pretty much we're looking at a time where we really need to be investing in our soil and in our farms. And the only way that we can make that investment is if we purchase that food. And yeah, sometimes it is more expensive. But yeah, if we want farms in the future, we also have to think about what that is. The third thing that you can do is just grow something in your backyard. Kale and broccoli growing in your backyard is just a big fat advertisement for kale and broccoli. And that's really good because we need to eat a lot more of that in this region. Bok choy, gai lan, all that grows super well here. Like It is ridiculous how well it grows here. And so if more people are thinking about that and growing that at home, we'll have more demand for that from our farms here, which make it easier for farmers to grow. And, and come out to the farm with us. We'd love to engage with you guys and connect with you at our farms. And, and we're going to have a big, long-table dinner where we're going to celebrate good food for all and at our David Thompson site. So you can check that out at this event break. I'm just pitching ourselves, just doing it making the pitch, so come and, and join us out um, at our long table dinner, which is going to be a really uh, fantastic place. And and um, Andrea Reimer once gave this talk that uh, I, I talked to her about a little while ago, and she didn't really remember any of the points that she had made, but like they were super impactful to me. And she said, if you want to make change, you, there's a four-step process. And I was like, oh my god, only four steps, that's amazing. And so the first is set ambitious goals. Like, don't Piddle around with little things. Just set crazy ambitious goals, the things, the secret dreams that you have in your mind. She said, just put those down on paper and do that. You know, whether it's chopsticks or for every farm, for every school to have a farm on it, set that down. And then make a plan. It's gonna be wrong, but that's okay. Just make a plan, try something. Have something down on paper for steps on how to get there. Break that ambitious goal down into smaller pieces. And no matter what it is, doing things in the universe of people in, mean that you're gonna need people to get it done. So you need a team. You're gonna need people that are like people and people that are not like you to get it done. We work with a tremendous variety of people that help make this happen. People that are not necessarily partners in other way, but find commonalities around good food for all. And that's, I think, a real trick around making change. And then the last thing, and probably the most important thing uh, that Andrew said, it's just start, and this is what Felix had said as well. Just like do something, and that's kind of what we did. We just started growing food, and then people show up. And so whatever the idea is, or whatever the connection is, is figuring out how to just start and make something happen. That's, that's the real trick, I think, of any of this work in life. Anything that you do, just try something, and people will come. It's a little bit Field of dreamsy, y but uh, I think it's a really important part about, about what, what life's all about. People are inspired by other, other people that are just doing it. And so that's, those are the, these are like these really great things that Andrew and Reimer passed, passed along, and so I wanted to pass them on uh, to you guys. Um, and now I have this beautiful photo of, of children that come to the farm occasionally. And, and because I think, um, when you plant, I don't know if you guys have ever seen mustard seeds, or imagine in yourself like your grainy mustard. Those tiny little seeds, that tiny little seed will grow into a plant that's this tall if we let it go. And so this miracle of a, I still don't really get it, this tiny seed that if we water, if we tend, if we care, if we take pleasure in the growth of something else and really find and and watch and and build a relationship to it, really anything, we we can do anything. And, and so that's that's what I wanted to say to you guys. So, here's all my contact information. So, we'd love to see you guys on the Big thanks to our sponsors, On-Site Equipment, My City Pictures, and Van Urban Timber. For more information, visit thechangechats.com.